Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and did not necessarily represent those of AMC Networks and its employees. Imagine that the farmer and the chicken are having a conversation about the benefits of a ham and egg breakfast. The farmer's in one position, the chicken's in another. The chicken can give up an egg without giving up the chicken's life. But the pig, if you're going to be bacon, there's just not a place in that conversation for you to take up a speaking position. To say, like, you know, actually, I think I would kind of like to keep all of my little pork rinds to myself here. And the role of the pig in that conversation is to disrupt the breakfast industrial complex. And I feel it's that way about what I think would be mischaracterized as vigilantism when people who are in targeted positions do whatever is necessary to disrupt the context that puts their life at a disadvantage. This year, gangs of youths began attacking homosexuals on the streets. If you were them, you want to survive, you want loved ones to survive well, Maybe you need to get a gun and uh, walk around with it. The first voice you heard was Susan Stryker, an LGBTQ historian from San Francisco. And she's talking partly about a controversial question that arose after white nationalist Richard Spencer got sucker punched on camera. Is it okay to punch a Nazi? But she's also commenting on the actions of a gay Pentecostal preacher who formed a vigilante group in the 70s called the Lavender Panthers. Their mission was to patrol the streets of the Tenderloin and strike fear into the hearts of those who were attacking homosexuals. Reverend Ray Brochier's sounds too crazy to be true. A tale from Bizarro Land. That's where we're going this episode to that alternate reality where gay reverends take to the streets with sawed-off pool cues, where gangs of untouchable women wearing pink descend upon rapists, where the Jewish people strike back at the Germans with a holocaust of their own. Except these tales of the hunted becoming the hunters are all true. Welcome back to The Truth About True Crime. I'm your host, Amanda Knox. This season, I'm exploring a difficult moral question. Is it ever just to take the law into your own hands? 
We kicked off this tour of vigilante justice with the Sundance TV docuseries, No One Saw a Thing, which unpacks the legacy of violence in Skidmore, Missouri, that began with the murder of Kenrex McElroy in broad daylight. Many saw Kenrex as a bully and his killing as a justified act of self-defense. But self-defense, as it's defined in our legal system, doesn't allow for shooting someone in the back of the head, as Ken Rex was, or punching them in the face when they're giving an interview, a la Richard Spencer. The threat has to be immediate, and the use of force has to be no more than necessary to fend off the attack. It's a question of who creates the threat and who responds. But can there be a broader definition of self-defense? What about existential threats that are more diffuse, more ever-present? Not isolated actions, but cultural milieus of systematic oppression. Can that background justify a violent action that otherwise appears to be an unprovoked act of aggression? Raymond Brochiers and the Lavender Panthers bring these questions into sharp focus. We don't want guns. We don't want mace. We don't want the billy clubs, like the one you see over in the corner there. We don't want these things. But by God, do you want to be beaten, Mike? It's difficult for me to imagine what it must be like to fear random beatings, to think billy clubs and guns are a necessary precaution. I grew up in a city that has rainbow-painted crosswalks. I helped found the Gay-Straight Alliance at my high school. And I'm recording this at a time when a legally married gay man is running for president. It's hard to understate how far we've come since the 70s. Gay rights activist Bob Kunst, a controversial figure in his own right, put it into perspective for me. We were always out on the streets, so we got the comments directly from everybody how they felt about what we were doing equating our lovemaking with uh, having sex with animals and dead people. So you can imagine the level of the debate. Then wanted to claim we were all child molesters. The freedom that we were missing was the oppression that was put on us by every institution, including the gay ones, that says you're second class. Bob Kunst was leading the fight in Florida. Surely things were better in a place like San Francisco, which had long been a mecca for gay and transgender people. We're talking about the city that elected the first openly gay politician in California, Harvey Milk. But don't forget. This guy, Dan White, murders the mayor of San Francisco and he murders Mm. Harvey Milk because he was gay. He did have to go to jail, but he was convicted only of manslaughter and got a four and a half year prison sentence with the possibility of parole earlier. I mean, this guy assassinated the mayor of San Francisco and killed an elected official because he didn't like that he was gay, and he was not adequately punished for that. And so, if you're a member of one of the targeted communities, you could see the state response is actually giving you the message your life doesn't really matter that much to us. You know, mm-hmm. that it's like, and that is a kind of violence. It's not the violence of one man picking up a gun and shooting and killing two other men, but it's a systemic violence 
that says to a category of people, gay people in this case, your life doesn't really matter the way other people's life matters. In the 1970s, the Tenderloin neighborhood of downtown San Francisco was gritty. Its cheap studio housing was home to immigrants, artists, and social outcasts, among them gays, transgender people, drag queens, and kings. There was an active art and music scene, but also rampant poverty, homelessness, and crime, especially drug trafficking and prostitution. LGBTQ people who congregated there were under threat of harassment and violence by gangs of teenagers, criminals, and police officers alike. I think the biggest difference between now and the 70s is that a lot of the violence directed at LGBTQ people was kind of, in some ways, unnamed, invisibilized. You know, it's like it was as if such people didn't exist and the violence directed at them wasn't even counted. Um, and that as LGBT people have gained social visibility um, and a greater degree of social acceptance, now we're being specifically targeted because of that. It's like once you've been made visible, then the people who are opposed to you, they know where to look for you. Raymond Brochiers was at the forefront of that fight for visibility, just making it known and counted when the LGBTQ community was victimized. Raymond Brochiers was kind of a street preacher, gay liberationist, um, who, you know, was genuinely interested in, um, you know, what now gets called intersectional social justice issues. I mean, he cared about poverty. He cared about racial minoritization and, um, you know, the oppression of racial minorities. He cared about old people and sex workers and, you know, people that we would now call transgender people. That led Reverend Ray, as he preferred to be called, to found the Helping Hands Community Center and the Old Folks Defense League. He also helped organize the first gay pride march in San Francisco in 1972. But brochures could also be abrasive. He was a volatile, eccentric character. He'd been in the Navy when he was a younger man and had experienced a really serious gay bashing where he was severely beaten and had a concussion. It's my personal sense that he probably had some kind of traumatic brain injury. He um, could be very erratic in his, you know, behaviors. His moods could just flip on a dime. He might be all rainbows and sunshine and puppies one minute, and then the next minute would be totally up in your grill. And that sounds like some frontal lobe damage. You know, I think he was personally traumatized by that mm. beating. Um, there were other instances, including one where he experienced a beatdown in San Francisco from a gang of teenage boys. And mm -hmm. that was the thing that prompted him to form the Lavender Panthers. It was on July 4th, 1973. Reverend Ray had called the police on a group of teens because they were lighting off cherry bombs in front of his Helping Hands Community Center and throwing them into traffic. The police showed up, 
But rather than protect Ray and his gay community center, they simply told the teens that brochures had ratted them out and left. Later that night, the teens found Ray and they were looking for payback. They jumped him at the corner of Turk and Jones, hit him repeatedly in the head and groin, and dragged his crumpled body down the sidewalk. They might have beat him to death had a bus driver not showed up and scared them away. Two days later, after leaving the hospital, Brochiers organized a press conference at the Helping Hands Community Center. Too long, gay people have been the prey. There are other people here who know Ray Brochiers is 100% serious. Brochiers is sitting behind a table decorated with the logo of a prowling panther cut from lavender paper. He's flanked by two gun-toting community members that the AP at the time described as drag queens. Like his compatriots, Brochiers was something of a contradiction, with his sweeping black hair, long sideburns, mustache, and priest's collar, and speaking in gentle cadences, you might mistake him for a pacifist. But of course, there's that 410 gauge shotgun he's holding. When the police are called, uh, the person who has been victimized by these gangs is treated as a criminal by the police. I mean, he's treated uh, like the person who's actually done something. And then in some of the cases, the police grab the kids. The kids have said, well, the person made a, a sexual advance towards them. So the police, you know, lets the kid go and says, all right, queer, get out of here. Brochiers says all this while cradling his shotgun, which he would fill with rock salt and that he once said would leave a hole in a man big enough to drive a tank through Georgia. But perhaps it was more of a symbol for his militant group. Are these uh, patrols uh, going to be armed? Not with rifles, no. The rifles are for home protection and business protection. Well, what are they going to be? How are they going to protect themselves? With our clubs and with our uh, red spray paint. He felt that these constituencies that he cared about didn't have any other recourse but to meet police violence with street patrol. It took not just its name, but its playbook from Black Panther activism in the mid-1960s. They became the Lavender Panthers. They were interested in self-defense. They were interested in showing that they had the means of resistance by openly carrying weapons. So what did the Lavender Panthers actually do? A 1973 article from Time magazine describes one encounter in which Brochiers and a few comrades spotted a gang of youths beating on a gay couple outside the Naked Grape, a local gay bar. They quote Reverend Ray as saying, We didn't even ask questions. We just took out our pool cues and started flailing ass. Brochiers said his band numbered 21 people and that they all knew judo, karate, kung fu, or plain old alley fighting, according to Time. The Lavender Panthers made a bold statement, but were they effective? Susan Stryker is skeptical. He always kind of had his finger on the pulse of the flashpoints and was always in the posture where he was like ready to lash out in the name of self-defense. And while I think he had the moral high ground, I also think strategically, tactically, that some of his actions didn't have a lot of efficacy. They didn't have a lasting consequence. Even at the time, many in the gay community opposed brochures, 
including Frank Fitch, spokesman for the Society for Individual Rights. We are all in agreement in stating that the Reverend Ray Bashirs does not represent the gay community. While we recognize that there does exist a climate of hate, fear, and ignorance against gay people in this country, and that that climate often results in violent acts perpetrated against us, we feel that the use of violence to respond to violence solves nothing. Indeed, it only escalates the climate of hate and fear and ignorance to which we referred. The Lavender Panthers were short-lived only active from the summer of 1973 to the spring of 1974, when Brochiers dissolved the group at the insistence of the San Francisco PD. Was that all for the best? Bob Kunst and Susan Stryker are LGBTQ activists on opposite sides of the political spectrum. Kunst supported Trump. Stryker supports Antifa. But they agree on one thing. When I look at what Brochures did with the Lavender Panthers, I support it. When we talk about vigilantism, if you keep playing this game that you're weak and passive and uh, afraid, the enemy comes after you even stronger. And maybe the only thing that saves you from the insanity is if you're armed. Would you support a modern-day kind of Lavender Panthers? Absolutely. I think it's absolutely necessary. If somebody's coming for you, why say, like, oh, let's have a conversation about this, you know, let me talk you out of your homophobia and queer phobia, and, you know, let's have a, a reasonable conversation about this. I feel that sometimes when you're being targeted, that it is okay to disrupt the things that are bringing that violence to you. There's just, like, a huge difference between resisting that kind of state-sanctioned violence like Brochiers was doing when he created mm-hmm. the Lavender Panthers versus people sort of propping up the social order through extrajudicial violence. And then, like, what would you say to the Michelle Obamas of the world who say they go low and we go high? I think it's kind of a false dichotomy. It's like, we can go high, you know, we can make that argument about how we are bending the universe towards justice across the long arc of time. I always think that's the right way to go. But when somebody is coming towards you with a club, I don't think that meeting physical violence with physical resistance is taking the low road. It's like there can be something quite high and that radical insistence on your own ability to live when somebody else is trying to deny you the means of life. With the right framing, violence can sound noble, a justified reaction to prior violence. And it seems like Brochiers, at least, was employing his sawed-off pool cue to break up ongoing attacks against gay people. There's still questions about due process and proportional use of force, but the violence he was responding to was literal physical violence. Personally, I'm glad Brashears disbanded his group, and I don't think we need a modern-day Lavender Panthers. Though the message he sent, that gay people will stand up for themselves by force of arms if necessary, feels important and worth delivering. Many people who knew him said it was mostly bluster anyway, that Reverend Ray was a softy who just liked to carry a big gun. If that's true, then the Lavender Panthers were a kind of fantasy, a tale from Bizarro Land. 
But fantastical stories can have dramatic impacts on reality. Never underestimate the power of symbolism. Right now, in India, women are taking this lesson to heart by the thousands, donning pink saris and carrying lathis, beating sticks. Once I was uh, going and I saw a man was hitting his wife. So I just stopped and asked, like, why are you hitting this lady? So he said, she's my wife. You don't need to tell me what I'm doing. So I told him, you know, she's a woman. So that time he just stopped and I just walked away. But I thought, you know, that we need to do something. That's the voice of a translator relaying my conversation with Sampat Paul Devi. So the next day, uh, when the man was in the field, we went together and we started hitting him. And that was just to make him realize how it feels. So we never told anyone or we never even told that person why we did this. But then he realized why was I hit. And then he knew that it was me or my gang. So he stopped doing that to his wife. He came home and he said sorry to us and he also said he would never do this again. Sampat Paul Devi is the founder of India's Gulabi Gang. According to their website, and they have a website, they stop child marriages, persuade families to educate female children, train women in self-defense, raise awareness about dowry-related violence, file lawsuits against sex offenders and abusive husbands, publicly shame molesters, and encourage women to become financially independent. No English. No English. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't speak Hindi, so you'll have to imagine the voice of a woman in her late 50s who wears a bright pink sari and carries a mean-looking stick. Sampat Paul was talking about the first time she gathered a group of female friends to wreak vengeance upon a male domestic abuser. It was something she'd witnessed a lot of living in India, the worst country to be a woman in the G20, according to Reuters. Especially in rural areas, women continually face the threat of rape, kidnapping, domestic violence, and being murdered or driven to suicide by their husbands and in-laws over dowry disputes. And too often, the police are no help to these women. The attack is the latest in a series of violent sexual crimes across the country. They had no rights once they were married. There have been instances of women burnt alive, women thrown out of their homes. On an average, 13 women were raped every day and the state recorded where I come from, it's uh, called Bundelkhand, which is in Uttar Pradesh. I was married when I was 12. To a man over twice her age, no less. She became a slave in the house of her in-laws, she says, without ever learning to read or write. And at age 15, she gave birth to the first of five children that came year after year. Sampat Paul was typical until she wasn't. Word spread about how she'd beaten that abusive husband, and other women began approaching her asking for similar interventions or to join her group. 
Finally, in 2006, they took on a name and a uniform. The women of our gang, we wear a sari of gulabi color. So gulabi is basically like a pink color. They also took on a weapon of choice, the lathi, a bamboo beating stick. The stick that we hold that is more like a protection. It's not for a fight. It's just like a uniform that we carry along with us. Meet the Golabi Gang. Their mission is to fight injustice. They voice their rights through slogans of strength. So what does the Gulabi gang actually do? Our gang, we walk with bamboo stick and we go to the lady's place. And first we try to understand what the problem is. And then by talking to them, we try to uh, sort out the matter. We also have meetings in the villages. And I have appointed different commanders all over the region. The commanders, they try to unite people. We try mostly to resolve issues without any fights or without taking the law under our hands. Currently, we are giving training to the women to be independent and be safe using bamboo sticks. There were different types of training that we give to women here, like training which includes chili powder. She's talking about smearing chili powder on abusive men as a defense technique. To hear Sampat Paul tell it to me, the Gulabi gang limits its activities to self-defense, education, and intervention. But she's portrayed her group differently in the past. Al Jazeera interviewed her in 2014, and this is what she had to say. We fight rapists with lathis. If we find the culprit, we thrash him black and blue so he dare not attempt to do wrong to any girl or a woman again. Men who commit these atrocities should be beaten by women. They should be caught and have a tattoo of I am a rapist engraved on their forehead. She's also on the record saying, I don't advocate violence, but there are times when that is the only way to fight. There are people for whom words and arguments are not enough. This kind of talk has made her a controversial figure, and it's drawn many women to her cause, most of them from lower castes. Some estimates claim that there are as many as 400,000 women in the Gulabi gang. They journey on crowded buses or hitchhike for hundreds of miles to Sampat Paul's simple concrete house, painted pink. They come bearing histories of abuse, domestic violence, and neglect by their local authorities. Where these women come from, the police are often not a solution. To the Gulabi gang, the police can even be an obstacle. There was an incident where the police were a bit angry with us, so they caught a poor man and they kept him behind the bars for 11 days. And when we went there, they used to tell us, like, you go from here, you can't do anything. So what I did was, I took around 300 women 
and also dogs with us and we went there the reason we took the dog is because the dogs were more loyal than the police and then one police officer you know they uh, he caught my hand so what i did is you know i attacked them we all came together and we attacked them so we never had an intention of attacking the police but yes we had to do that because they were the one who attacked us It's stories like these that lead many people to label the Gulabi gang as a vigilante group. Now people get scared of us. You know, people think that if we do something, uh, the Gulabi gang would come and, you know, they would get a couple of women along with uh, them and they might uh, say something to us. We have never hurt anyone. Yes, we have maybe a slap or just a punch is what we have done and that was initially to make people realize that we are strong but we have never hurt or you know nobody's bleeded or we have not you know carried guns or any uh, weapons it's just the fear of the women that people have now like Raymond Brochier's Sampat Paul is something of a contradiction she advocates peace while wielding a stick she's a figure from bizarro land the victim turned protector and she knows it she leans into the hype magnifies it with a costume a symbol just as the lavender panthers did it may be that the idea of an army of armed pink women waiting to thrash potential rapists is more powerful than any individual beatdown that her power comes not from vigilante action itself and not even from the threat of it but from the myth surrounding it But vigilante justice isn't just a myth in India. There's a long bloody history of it, and plenty of people are not happy about the Gulabi gang and what it represents. I wanted to talk to someone on the opposite end of the spectrum from Sampat Paul. So I called up Amit Deshpande, a men's rights advocate in India. Vigilante justice in India it has been prevalent since a long time in these smaller villages if somebody is spot killing they would never be given to the police it is the villagers would just kill the person they will uh, injure the person badly these are the stories we grew up with this has been quite prevalent it's worth noting up front that the men's rights movement in india as it is here is controversial many view them as reactionary anti-feminist trolls and to be sure A quick Google search turns up Indian MRA activists holding signs that read feminists stop raping Indian men. But I haven't seen this kind of rhetoric from Amit Deshpande, who in his TED talk advocates for gender neutral laws and highlights how patriarchal culture is responsible for harms against women and men alike. The worst form is like these days um, there have been vigilante justices wherein a man was accused of raping a girl and he was put in the jail a group of 1000 people stormed into the jail got hold of him dragged him outside and you know first captured him and then killed him wow after about 6 months it was found that the man was actually not the person who raped the girl these vigilante justice cases need to be discouraged uh, in a big way 
any kind of people who would support vigilante justice of any sort, that is barbaric. Are you familiar with the Gulabi gang? Yes, I am. Uh, they run around uh, with a stick where they justify their uh, violence against men. That is something we don't agree with. Men who are accused of false cases. The whole society looks down upon them as if they are, you know, criminals. This was a big question lingering in the back of my mind while I talked to Sampat Paul. When you violate due process, when you thrash men in the street, what risk do you run of meeting out justice to someone who doesn't deserve it? I'm very sensitive to false accusations, as you can imagine. And though I'm all for encouraging a climate where women feel safe naming their abusers, I also distrust mobs, and I know that false accusations of rape do happen. My friend Brian Banks spent five years in prison after being falsely accused. But the possibility of wrongful accusations aside, we also have to remember that the women joining the Gulabi gang are doing so because the police and the courts have failed repeatedly to protect them from domestic and sexual violence. I would not want to be a lower-class woman in India, I'll tell you that. In the state of Haryana, if you're Dalit and female, you're doomed. First, you're a woman, so you're already seen as a second-class citizen. Then you're a Dalit, and the prejudice is still deep-rooted. So what does Amit Deshpande think about the plight of women in his country? It is being uh, propagated that uh, Indian women fare very badly on the Human Development Index, uh, so women are oppressed. We should also see that men also fare very badly on the Human Development Index. Okay, mm. So it is not a men or a women issue, it is actually a human development issue. Mm. That's how I would see it. Sampat Paul gave me a similar answer when I asked her about men. Along with women, I also support men. You know, I, I have always helped men as well because I explained them they should start respecting women. Men and women are like tires of a vehicle. So even if one tire gets punctured, the vehicle won't run. So that's how people are coming together. I'm not an expert on the social dynamics of India's caste system, the ramifications of their honor culture, or even the effectiveness of their criminal justice system. I also know that India is huge and diverse, a mashup of a thousand local cultural and colonial legacies, and that while problems like rape may plague one area, other regions are facing different challenges. So I have no bold pronouncements to make about the gendered injustice motivating the Gulabi gang to take up arms. I'm all for education and female empowerment, but I am skeptical whenever mobs and big sticks get involved. What I can say with more confidence is that the Gulabi gang, like the Lavender Panthers, shows how visibility, numbers, and the willingness to carry weapons to say, I will no longer be prey, is a powerful symbolic tool for social change. These groups are powerful symbols because they are so unexpected, and they seem fantastical. That's not what victims are supposed to do. They're not supposed to wield pool cues or bamboo rods. And they're certainly not supposed to commit mass murder.
Long before the Avengers franchise dominated our box office, a real-life group of Jewish Avengers, led by a man named Abba Kovner, hatched a plot for revenge that would equal the scope and atrocity of the Holocaust. Just as the Nazis had murdered six million Jews, Kovner's Avengers had planned the slaughter of six million Germans. They even gave their organization a name, Nakam. It means vengeance. We all learn about the Holocaust in school, but I'd never heard anything about a Jewish revenge plot. So I called up Israeli filmmaker Avi Mercado Edigui, who directed and produced Avenging Evil, a documentary about Nakam. Before getting into the details, he helped ground me in the horror that motivated this attempt at revenge. Imcha Wotem told me a story about what does it mean to be the Warsaw Ghetto. One night he walked in the street and he heard the baby cry. He went closer and closer. He bent his knees down and he saw a baby. The mother that told him is actually already passed away. Mm. And the baby is crying. And then he asked me, do you know what would you have done in a moment like that? And I couldn't answer, of course. And he said, you know what I did? I ran away. I left. I couldn't do anything. Do you know what that feel like? With stories like these, it can seem too horrific to be real. And of course, there are Holocaust deniers out there who can't seem to imagine this atrocity outside of Bizarro Land. He was 17 years old. He already lost all his family. And this situation that nobody should be in, that's the why you want to revenge. When you really grapple with the insanity of Nazi extermination of the Jewish people, you realize that Bizarro Land isn't a fantasy. We live there. And that revenge tales, like Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards, aren't mere products of Hollywood. It all started with Abba Kovner. Abba Kovner was born in Vilnius. During the war, he was first in the Vilnius ghetto. He was part of the resistance over there, the FPO. And when they exterminate the ghetto, he and some of the other revengers went to their woods and became partisans. Abba Kovner was an extraordinary man and a compelling leader. He was equal parts poet and soldier. While living in the Vilnius ghetto, he released a manifesto titled, Let Us Not Go Like Lambs to the Slaughter. It was the first time a victim of the Holocaust publicly declared that Hitler was attempting to exterminate all the Jews in Europe. After the war, they knew stories about what happened and they knew the Germans are killing Jews, but they didn't really realize how, how horrific it is, how systematic it is. Though Kovner himself had declared Hitler's intentions, even he had not seen the worst of it firsthand. One of the first things he did, he went to, to Majdanek, which was one of the biggest death camps. Majdanek was the first concentration camp discovered by Allied forces. 78,000 people were estimated to have been murdered there. After his visit over there, he realized something had to be done. 
that was his moment of understanding that the world can't continue mm. uh, in the same way. And for him, the only way to prevent something like that to happen again was to revenge, to make the whole world know that you can't do a crime like that to the Jewish people without any retaliation. The next few days, he already came up with the idea of so in April 45, he was in Bucharest. He gathered one night 50 people and told them his plan. And according to the testimonies I heard, everybody just said yes. There were fighters, they lost the whole family. And it was very personal. I mean, one of them, his name is Poldek. He said that for him, the humiliation that he suffered from the Germans was the worst thing. Not even mm. the hunger, not even the death. For them, it was a one-time thing to do something, to pay back and then continue with the life. They felt they couldn't continue, that the world can't continue to spin without doing something to react to the atrocities of the Holocaust. Eye for an eye. But that first eye was the extermination of six million Jewish people two-thirds of the Jewish population in Europe. And the Germans had rallied an entire nation, rewritten laws, set up ghettos and concentration camps to carry that out. Setting aside the morality of revenge for a moment, practically speaking, how was a contingent of just 50 Holocaust survivors going to repay that? They tried to do what they called Plan A, which is to poison the water plants and kill six million Germans. They got four groups in four cities. Hamburg, Nuremberg, Berlin, and Munich. They had a, a commander in each team, and there are certain people that their job was to infiltrate to the water plant. And another one was to get the blueprint of the water plant, because they planned to cut or blow up part of the pipes so the poison won't go to the foreigners' area or the quarter. So it will go only to Germans. The biggest part of this whole thing was getting the poison, poison strong enough to kill so many people. And there was, you know, you can't go to the market and buy something like that. So Abba Kovner went to Palestine. He met a man called Chaim Weizmann. Chaim Weizmann later became the first president of Israel, and he was a scientist. When he told Weizmann the story, Weizmann supported him and said, I'm going to give you a note, go with that to a science university named after Weizmann. So we sent him over there with a note. He met the scientist over there and said, I need something very special. I need a poison very strong that has no color, no taste, and that nobody will be able to locate after it. So nobody will know that we use the poison. And the guy said, okay, I'll need a few weeks and come back. And actually the scientist who made the poison, him and his brother, one of them became the third, if I'm not mistaken, the second was the third president of Israel, yeah. And nobody wow. knew about it. The involvement of these future Israeli presidents is disputed by some. But if true, 
It makes it all the crazier that this story has slipped under the historical radar. Imagine if George Washington and Thomas Jefferson had attempted to murder millions of British citizens, including children, mind you, because this plan, Plan A, it did not distinguish between Nazis and German infants who might drink the poisoned water. It was really a lot of waiting game. That was probably one of the worst times. Because after six years of a lot of hiding in the woods or uh, outside the ghetto, now they were doing the opposite. They need to live between German population, trying to become friends of them while hiding from the Americans and Russians that they were just a minute before trying to help. And now they became the enemies. And I think mentally that was very, very hard for them. Imagine the situation. You need to be nice to the people that you actually want to kill. And a few weeks later, he came back. He took the poison, put them in small tin cap, and he went on a ship back to Europe. But just a few hours before arriving back in France, Kovner's ship was boarded by British officers. They called him to the upper deck, and Kovner, already suspicious that he'd been discovered, told his compatriots, if I'm not back in five minutes, throw everything into the sea. And that's what happened. Abba Kovner had been caught, but for the wrong reason. The British suspected he was a right-wing terrorist working with the Palestinians. They didn't know about the poison, and by this accident of history, they prevented Plan A from coming to fruition, potentially saving millions of lives without even knowing it. The other people in the group heard that their leader uh, got caught. He's second in command. He said he wanted to kill himself. I mean, oh. they were really down. They thought everything is lost. It was really hard for them to pick themselves up again. So they got most of the members back to Paris. Paris was their headquarters. And then decided, okay, we need plan B. Nakam was committed. This time, though, they revised their scope, targeting not Germans broadly, but SS men specifically. When it failed, they tried to do what they call Plan B, which was poisoning bread loaves that goes to Dachau, where they had SS men, which was a POW camp that the American guarded, one in Dachau and the other one in Nuremberg. They decided that the way in will be through the bakery, because the only thing that came from outside the camp was the bread. Mm-hmm. So they infiltrate, and they got people in. They were trying to say, uh, I was a baker back then, but I don't have a job anymore, and I lost all my family, please help me. And in each of the bakeries, they actually got someone in to start working in the bakery for several months, three, four months. Did I say this already? Nakam was committed. Each one of them also, in one point or another, were able to get a copy of the keys of this bakery. And then they brought in someone that they knew from Vilnius. His name was Itzhak Rosner. They nicknamed him the engineer. Mm -hmm. He was a chemist. 
he had to study a bit to learn how to make a poison like that. And through someone that was working in a leather factory, when you make leather, you need to use arsenic. So he gave them large amount of, of arsenic and other chemicals that he tested it in Paris, put a few drops in the milk and gave it to some street cat. And a few minutes later, the cat died. For them, it was a good sign. They were joyful because they succeeded. They felt like they can do it. And in one day, in April 13, they were all ready. So in Dachau, because there was suspicion that someone discovered them, they pulled the plug in really at the last minute. And in Nuremberg, they actually did it. The idea was that I, he will take the last shift of, of the same day, and when everybody leaves, he will hide in the bakery, and people will think uh, it's empty. They heated the poison in a warm bottle. The hot water bottles are stashed under the floorboards until they are needed. The plan is to poison the loaves on the Sunday after the final shift of the week. That bread will then be delivered to the SS prisoners on the Monday morning. So around midnight, he went out of a basket that he was hiding and opened the window to get another two Avengers inside. The problem was that it was really, really thick. So they needed to put some water to make it a bit easier to stir and then stick to the bread. The arsenic is mixed with glue to stick it to the undersides of the bread. They have until sunrise to poison as many loaves as possible. They worked vigorously. One is stirring the barrel all the time with the poison. Another one gives the bread and the third one is spreading it with a brush mm -hmm. on the bottom of each bread loaf. Around four o'clock, they heard noise. There was a guard coming, so they ran outside. But they felt they succeeded. And the guards heard something. But they thought someone was just getting inside to steal bread, which mm -hmm. was happening quite a lot. Uh, so they didn't think about anything. And then the next day in the morning, they gave the bread away to the prisoners, mm -hmm. like they do every day. They got around 2,000 bread, cut to four people, so the casualty was supposed to be around 8,000 people. They did it. They pulled the trigger. As far as Nakam knew, they had just committed vigilante mass murder. They looked at all the newspapers. Nobody talked about someone dying. They mm. wrote that there was a food poisoning in some of the papers. A lot of people got sick. They got a stomach pump. Um, some got hospitalized. They at least hoped, I think, that they still killed a few people. Um, some of them saying that they did, that they're hiding it. Uh, according to everything I looked for, including secret documents uh, of the Americans, I don't think anyone died. But still, in a world that's obsessed with justice, it's amazing that most people have never heard about what may be the most epic and mass-scale attempt at vigilante justice in history. I think it's intentional. 
they kept it secret for, for many, many years. They did a good job in hiding it. And for good reason. Many years later, before Abakovner died, he met with a group of former Nakam soldiers to talk about what happened, and he taped their discussion. I found a letter written by Abakovner to the group after those meetings. And he said, I'm going to hit these tapes because I don't think now anyone will understand me. Maybe one day someone will find them and, and tell our story when the world will be ready to get it. He was also really concerned about someone using his operation as an excuse to hurt mm. people in Israel. He was afraid that the Palestinians would say, well, the Jews tried to do it, so we can do it as well. Had Nakam succeeded, there's a good chance Israel might not exist today. Just imagine how we would look back on World War II, not as a holocaust against the Jews, a holocaust that motivated the creation of Israel, but as a double tragedy. Victims and aggressors on both sides. Even so, not everyone in Nakam felt the same about the failure of their plan. Some of them really hold the grudge for Abakovner and for others because they didn't succeed. None of them was ashamed of what they did or what they tried. Most of them show regret, especially for the big plan EA. I think most of them know it was too crazy to do. They didn't want to see other people suffer, especially not children. One of them is saying, we didn't want to become the Germans' number two. And yet... They don't regret. They do feel kind of proud that they were the ones who at least tried to do something. But on the same time, I think they're happy nobody died. As of the Lavender Panthers and the Gulabi Gang, the impact of Nakam can be read as largely symbolic. In failing, they may have actually got the best result possible. They made an unforgettable statement. Success would have endangered the future of the Jewish people. But let's not forget, they did actually try to murder people. When we morally judge actions, impact matters, but so does intent. That's why we distinguish between murder and attempted murder. But should we celebrate Nakam for attempted murder? I don't think it's something to be ashamed of or to justify on the other end. But especially now, 70-something years later, in a few years, 10, 15 years, for sure, there will be no living Holocaust survivors. And I think all the stories should be heard. And because it's so complicated, it's something that Jewish people, and I think all over the world, need to discuss, need to try to understand. It's something I think we all need to try to understand. For the vigilante stories that fill our cinemas and comic books are tapping into all too real primal instincts, and the alternate realities that they depict are often less bizarre and less complicated than reality. I know exactly how I feel about Iron Man. I can't say the same about Nakam. Next time on The Truth About True Crime, the wild west of the internet where e-vigilantes hunt down and punish digital wrongdoers. 
from animal abusers to child molesters. This podcast is written and produced by me, Amanda Knox, and my partner, Christopher Robinson, and directed, edited, and sound designed by Galen Mullins. It is executive produced by Malka Media, Sundance TV, and AMC Digital Studios. In the meantime, be sure to check out the Sundance TV docuseries, No One Saw a Thing, at sundancetv.com. And please subscribe, rate, review, and share the truth about true crime.